Hey everyone, this is Jack in Stockholm. And this is Dave in Stockholm. And this is Build Phase. David, good to have you with me here. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. I know you from having met you at Cocoa Heads and talked to you at Propeller Heads, or rather at Alihupa. Mm -hmm. What are you mainly looking at these days? I kind of fill in the gaps and didn't do stuff like that, uh, environment type things or trying to optimize processes. I've been doing a lot of project management lately. In terms of iOS, though, I'm uh, updating our Hackintosh, our build machine right now. Oh, right. And I've also been wrangling with Travis recently. So we're kind of doing a comparison between Jenkins on a Hackintosh and Travis in the cloud and seeing which one works better for us. Interesting. How is that going? Like, which Do you have any indications of what's looking better right now? I guess I'd say personally, I like Jenkins better still because I've been using it for a long time, so I'm kind of biased, but it's a lot easier to debug what's going wrong when it breaks. And it's mm -hmm. also faster. Again, I'm a Travis noob, so I, there's probably a lot more that I can learn about it, but it looks like the raw like build times are just a lot faster on any kind of physical machine as opposed to what the VM they have in Travis. Okay. That does make some sense, especially when you have an environment you can control. It's a whole different, whole different thing. Yeah. What are the characteristics of this Hackintosh that you've put together? So I started with a kit that I found online. There's a really good site called Tony Mac that has a bunch of people that are into this kind of stuff and they have setups that they recommend. So it's a Core i7 Skylake running at four gigahertz. It's got eight megabytes of cache on it. I got 32 gigs of DDR4 RAM and then a pretty fast Samsung five gigabyte SSD inside of that. Nice. This is something that I've, I've read about over the years, but I've never really done at all. My understanding is that there are problems sometimes when it comes to updating OS versions and things. How much of a pain is it really? It's like anything that's kind of convoluted. I guess you get better at it the more you do it and how often you do it. Sure. There's not a lot of conflicts, actually. It's a lot more stable than I thought. I was worried it was going to be breaking all the time. Mm -hmm. I actually just updated to uh, Sierra yesterday to 10.12.3. And okay. it went really, really smoothly, actually. I just updated the bootloader, then updated Mac OS, and then had to get some new drivers for the graphics card. But after that, it was... I mean, there were some minor things. Yeah, because Apple makes their operating system more clamped down secure every time they update something, you know, right. so that permissions that worked previously don't work anymore. And Jenkins can't run. It can't read its own logs and stuff like that. So the place where you, where you first bought this... I assume they have a forum or some kind of community there where people are posting about what is the latest updates, latest drivers, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. There's a lot of guys in there that are really dedicated and excited, and they are pretty much on the bleeding edge in terms of keeping their machines running, both okay. on the latest Mac OS as well as getting the right drivers and recommending approved ones for you. Cool. Speaking of like CI systems, I've been kind of working the opposite end of the spectrum. Lately at a client, we are working on a project in Unity, Mm -hmm. and we're using the Unity cloud build system for making builds. It's kind of slick. You just push them into master on GitHub, and it notices and checks it out and builds for Mac, Windows, iOS, and Android, and okay. then sends you an email or, or posts it in Slack. Uh -huh. And it's kind of neat. It's incredibly slow. <laughs> 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 like, like sometimes... You push to, to GitHub, and you wait, and nothing happens, and you go log into the the sort of dashboard they have, and you look and see, and it says that it's, you know, it's in the queue. And this is, we were actually, we're actually paying for Unity Pro, which is supposed mm -hmm. to give you faster build times, but it's just, 
takes a long time to get in the queue. And then even once it does, it's just, it's quite a long time to build compared to building locally on my laptop. Yeah. Because once it's up and running, it's like, you know, it's like Jenkins or whatever. It's a web page. You can sort of see the log ticking off as it's building. Mm-hmm. And it is not fast. But it's it's nice that it's, I didn't have to set it up. <laughs> you know, you don't, right. have to, you don't have to configure anything. You, you configure your account details and point it at GitHub. And that's about it. And it's nice that it builds four platforms all at once. Right. And obviously each of those have to be tested and all that sort of thing. And each, each one you'll have to do some setup and there's particulars for Android and particulars for iOS. But in general, it's, it's pretty neat. It's nice to have. That's cool. So what's the factor between like your build on your local machine versus what you're seeing on a similar operation on the uh, Unity build? So if I build locally, say from scratch, say I have a have my Unity project. And in Unity, the way it works is when you're building for iOS, it actually exports an Xcode project and all the files associated with it. And so the idea is that actually the Xcode project is an intermediate file in some sense. It's nothing you actually would keep. So mm-hmm. it, it kind of creates a directory and puts in the Xcode project, puts all the files there, and then that opens up in Xcode and you build it from there. Mm-hmm. So I would say like from nothing, if I haven't previously built, because you can also have it once you built once or export for iOS once, on your next build, it can just append. So it doesn't have to actually write all the files again necessarily. But if I'm starting from absolutely nothing and build for iOS and then open that Xcode and build, it's, I don't know, maybe total four, five, six minutes or something. Mm-hmm. And with the cloud build that Unity has, six minutes after I push to GitHub, it hasn't even started building. Usually, <laughs> <Okay>. it's, it's <laughs> And I don't know if it's, maybe they're just overwhelmed. Maybe they're very, very busy, their machines. That's entirely possible because I think that system has been in place for a year or two, I guess. And I'm sure they just have more and more people using it all the time. So right. I guess until they have enough people screaming at them to add more machines to their build farm, you know, it's gonna, it probably goes in waves, right? It probably, it probably gets slow and slow and slower. And then they add some machines and it gets better a bit. Right. But it's a nice convenience. And it's nice that it actually even, even if you're not paying for Unity Pro, if you're just using the free version, it's still there. It's an option. Mm-hmm. I think you have a fewer number of builds or you end up in a lower priority or something, but it's still doable. Yeah, we were running Travis test today and just doing a simple build of one configuration was three times slower on Travis mm. for that section of it. But then you have this, like you said, you've got, you requested it, it starts up, you have to wait a few minutes and there's a bunch of environment junk you got to go through so unfortunately you know we risk having 20 minute builds for a single pull request auto check of a small swift project it's just ridiculous so we started going through it this afternoon hacking out bits and pieces and realized lots of redundant things that were happening in the travis script that we could we could cut out okay but even then it was still just the raw compile time it's unfortunately really crappy Hmm. yeah it kind of makes it like you want to be able to have the ability to quickly take care of a pull request and be able to at least verify that you didn't break anything and that it looks okay. Right. And it's frustrating when even that takes a long time to happen. Yeah. I have been on some projects where Travis was in use for that sort of thing, but I was not involved in setting it up and I don't really remember the the times that things took or anything. Yeah. It's good that there are more and more of these options out there and it's good that it still is possible to do it on your own with a, with a nicer Hackintosh. Yeah, we'll see how long Apple lets us fall through the cracks and get away with that. <laughs> I just think that's not a high enough priority for them to try and stop that. Yeah. I think they have to in some sense. I think like it's kind of like protecting a trademark. You know, for legal reasons, you have to be able to at least show that, well, 
we try to do something to stem the tide of this. You know, we put in some effort so that people are not just ripping us off all the time. Right. Because if they just let everyone rip them off easily, then it would be probably decrease the value of their of their IP in some sense, as, right. as far as the law is concerned. But I think that probably like within Apple, you know, what are even Mac sales worth compared to iPhone sales? Yeah, not a whole lot, apparently. Yeah. I think that probably most people there do not really care, I would guess. Yeah, probably what's a lot more likely is just that it'll just rot away. They'll make some mistake and change OS X so it's in such a way, not intentionally shut out Hackintoshes, but that's probably what'll happen. Yeah, that could happen. But I don't know. I feel like this has been going on for so long. You've been able to sort of, you know, back since the power PC days. And I get probably before that even, you know, mm. there were third-party options. And that's the great thing is that it still just runs, uh, you know, like a Unix variant under the hood. So you have that kind of base level, hey, it's a kernel. It's going to have scripts. It's, it needs drivers. And that's what kecks are for and things like that. So Right. Yeah, as long as there are clever people out there willing to work on it, willing to tack things together, it'll probably keep going. Yeah. Otherwise, what are you guys doing where you're working with Swift versus Objective-C or with Swift 3 versus older Swift? Because I know that you have some apps that are, shall we say, legacy applications right. in Objective-C, <laughs> and, then you have some, and then you have some that are newer. Are you guys in general trying to port old apps to Swift or just add pieces in Swift as you can or as needed, or what is your general philosophy? Yeah. I think it's the last that you said. It's, you know, when we add new stuff, we'll write it in Swift because we we want to get good at that. We know it's going to be the way to go in the future, hmm. but we're not going to go out of our way to rewrite our legacy apps in Swift, especially because the majority of the code base is audio processing and that's Swift's not made for that anyway. Right. You want to, Apple still recommends that you do your DSP in C variants. So that that's what we have making right. the bulk of our older apps. Is it C or C++, the, the audio processing? It depends on the app, actually. So okay. the figure is a combination of both C and C++, because that has some really old stuff in it. And then the Take, our vocal recording app, is C++. That must be interesting, because as far as I know, there still really is no interop between Swift and C++ these days, right? Right. So does that mean you have to sort of bounce everything through a C layer, or an Objective-C layer, or how does yeah. that work? Yeah, exactly. Mm. So the nice thing for us is in both of the those two apps, the parts we have that are in Swift are like a add-on for the entire Alihoopa service. So the entire component lives in its own package okay. and it only very rarely talks to the main application, which it'll talk to app delegate or something like that. When you tap on a button and open this sub menu or this region of the app, other than that, it, it's completely agnostic and ignorant of what's going on in the rest of the app. Okay. That's good. I remember working on some, working on some software back like on the Mac, there was a time where they didn't really have Objective-C and C++ working together. Like mm-hmm. there, was, there was a time when the Objective-C++ mode was not there. Yeah. And I remember that was a pain because you had to sort of, <laughs> anything talking back and forth, you had to put just some C functions in between. Right, like extern type yeah, or things. Yeah, exactly. It was not pretty. And I mean, even Objective-C++ is not pretty either, but it's better than not having that. <laughs> Yeah, that's like the redheaded stepchild that Apple wants to not really admit it exists. <laughs> we were worried that we were doing it wrong because we had a lot of Objective-C++ in our code. So we emailed our developer relations guy and we're like, hey, what's your, your guidance on this? Should we you know, have a, a C external layer? Should we use Objective-C++? And he came back and said, what's Objective-C++? <laughs> <laughs> 
So it's got such a fringe reputation, even at <laughs> Apple, that, that our dev relations guy had never even heard of it. I had to ask her. <laughs> oh, man. That is sad. <laughs> That's crazy. It's, well, I mean, it's usable. It's not that bad, but it, yeah. it's, yeah, wow. That's pretty bizarre. But I guess it's been a long time since Apple has really shipped any C++ framework, except for things like IOKIP. That's kind of a different beast. But yeah. I'm trying to think, or I don't know, did Apple have C++ at all, really? I'm thinking all, like, all of the old kind of classic macOS stuff that was in Carbon, that was pretty much C mostly. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, you have to go back to the Carbon days, but you're right. I think it was even, it was just mostly C stuff back then. But I don't know. I guess I, was, I came to the Mac platform with next step because i was doing next step development in the 90s so that was all objective c and then when mac OS 10 came around and i was sort of following along there and that's my first taste of the sort of classic mac coding stuff at all which was all pretty funky and terrible i thought i'm sure you know back in the 80s when they started with it it was probably pretty cool you know for the time yeah i mean the hardware was pretty cool too that's also true it just felt like the future had finally arrived. You know, it was like an SGI, but you know, cool and stylish as opposed to being like a big turquoise rock. Right. <laughs> the other thing that I've been thinking about in the project I've been working on right now, I mentioned it's, an, it's a Unity project. <laughs> and one of the things that, that we're doing is we have some third-party frameworks for uh, Google Firebase and some other components. And just as a consequence of the Unity build cloud functionality or lack thereof, it got me thinking about it because with the Unity build cloud, there's no way to do something like run CocoaPods. You can't do a pod install on there. Right. And the entire process is driven from Unity, from the Unity editor application. So when you're going to do a, you have your source code that it is taken care of and it knows how to look at a Unity source code tree and find all the stuff and compile it remotely on their thing because the xcode project is intermediate file essentially yeah you're limited to what you can do so what they have is they have a spot where you can you can do sort of a post export hook you can write some code in c sharp that runs in the editor if you run it locally or it runs on the real cloud if you if you run it there and so what that can do is you can write some code that is called after the Xcode project is created and after all the files are put in place, but yeah. before it opens up the project and hits build or before it runs Xcode build from the command line. Mm -hmm. And so in there, what you do is you get the path to the directory where, where everything is. And then if you want to add frameworks to it, you can just grab the actual project file and do kind of a search and replace. Okay this very brute force crazy thing so like what i've been doing is i if i have some some pods that i want to build i export my project locally to create a fresh xcode project i set up cocoa pods i create a pod file i do pod install i make sure all my frameworks are all the pods are built they're all built as frameworks and then i take those frameworks the compiled frameworks and i put them into my unity project so they're like part of my unity source which means that when Unity, the next time I go to build, it's going to put those compiled frameworks into my Xcode project directory. So then from there, on the second pass, I can open that project, take those things that are on disk in the exported directory, drag them into Xcode, and then I look at the Xcode project file and see what it added. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so then 
I've got, you know, each framework ends up being added in like four different spots. So like there's one spot for where it appears in in the project navigator. There's one spot for where it, where it appears in a, a build phase somewhere. They're various things. And so I take those four spots and then I I sort of undo everything and go back to the original exported project file and compare and find a line that is either directly above or below where it was added. And then so then later I can, in my C-sharp method that is called after a project is created, I just take the whole project file as a string, search for that line that I'm looking for, and replace that line with itself plus my added framework line. It feels like such a horrendous hack, but it works great. It's astonishing. The thing that this has me thinking about a lot is that the Xcode project format, that whole thing, I don't even know why we have it. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, the, as, the as more I think, as opposed to a make file, as opposed to a make file, like it yeah. seems like all we're doing is building some code and copying some files. And I guess, in in a sense, this is I maybe what like the whole Swift package manager is a step towards doing something maybe without Xcode, right? Mm. Although I think even that, I haven't used it enough. I haven't, or I haven't looked at it in a while. But it seems it seems like I, I I would like to see at some point where we could be in a post Xcode project world. Like I have no problem using Xcode. I know some people some people really dislike it for various reasons. I think it's fine. I think it's I think it's pretty good actually. But I could do without the project file. It would be great if like I don't know, if it would just let me manage if it would manage the files for me and it it could have some intelligence to say, okay, oh you dragged a file in here, that means I should add it to the make file. You know? That would be cool. It could even have sections of the make file that are that we know that it manages, that no one else should, if you, you know, a section that you know that if you overwrite some of this, Xcode might wipe it out. You know, that'd mm. be fine. But that you could have just sort of a normal, a normal Unixy make file. Right. I just kind of, I kind of feel like this, I don't know what we're getting for all this hassle. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess we're still kind of clinging to that kind of graphical, we want to teach newbie guys, like, you know, you drag the stuff in. Your code is split up in this way. You have your model, your view, and the controller, and you can see it all on the left-hand side of the screen. That right. kind of real nineteen, early 1990s programming uh, paradigm that they wanted to teach everyone in school. But I think they could still do that. You know what I mean? I think you could have that and have it separated from how it's represented on disk in a different way. You know, mm-hmm. Right now, it's saved in one way in this big XML-like thing. Why not just save it in a different way? It would be a different, you know, a different file format. And again, it'd be something that where it would be clear that there are certain parts of your make file that you know that Xcode is going to interpret and show graphically in a, in a navigation panel in a certain way. Mm. And maybe other sections where you know you can add things and it's not going to mess with it or whatever. Right. I think over the last four major visions of Xcode, we've seen that they're trying more and more to add kind of a smoke and mirrors later on top of it where you have like the build settings that used to be just the info P list. And that was the only place you would modify like the bundle name and the version. But now right. you have this like fake panel in the general tab that doesn't actually live there and you can't actually edit it there. You have to go to the info P list, but it, it's kind of like a representation of where it's finding it somewhere else. So they've added these layers of like, you know, obfuscation just to try to simplify things. But I think because people were intimidated maybe by the fact there were so many parameters and so many, P lists, and that's how you you did your your project, right? Yeah, that's true. And that whole the whole capabilities tab, 
Right. Which is kind of a, yeah, like you said, it's smoke and mirrors. It's a nice, it's a nice front for what may be a whole variety of files and steps and processes, which is very useful. And I think that they could definitely keep doing that sort of thing and keep adding even more of that kind of thing, but that the, the representation of the project file on a disk doesn't need to be the complicated monster that it is right now. Yeah. Cause like, I know that I see a lot of people who are new to Apple's platforms who first see this, they first see Xcode and they're like, wait, like when they, the moment when you discover that <laughs> the thing you're looking at on the left with all your files is not the file system. Like you might have some correlation between folders in that thing and folders on your disk, but right. Not necessarily, and people are always asking, "Well, wait, why, why doesn't it just automatically just build all the source code files that I put in this directory, mm. and only those?" Or you know, why you know why does it have to be? And I never, I feel like I never really have a good reason for why, because when I look at something again, just by contrast, looking at Unity, it has certain spots where you can put your source code in a directory structure, and certain spots where you can't. And so the when it's going to, time to compile your C sharp code, it will compile all the C sharp code it finds in certain directories, and that's it. You're done. You don't have to sort of you don't have to mess with it. I guess that what that is sort of lacking in a way is it's lacking the ability to inspect one particular source code file and make changes to how it's going to be compiled, hmm. which you can do with Xcode, and Unity has really none of that. But I don't know. It's starting to kind of bother me. I've been using Xcode for years and years, and this it hasn't really bothered me, this thing with the project file, until now. <laughs> and I know that I've worked with people who've been bothered by this before for a number of reasons, and it kind of didn't really seem to affect me. This doesn't affect me much either, but it's still sort of like, it seems like this is too much work for a simple thing. You know, all, all I want to do is link in a library. Yeah. And I have to jump through just too many hoops. So, yeah, we've slowly figured out ways to make it like a little less painless just by embracing the eccentricities, I guess, or whatever. We used to have multiple targets for reasons with different dev teams and stuff like that. But the problem with multiple targets is then if you drag in a file, it's not going to add that file to all the targets at once by default. Just pick whatever the default target is. Where the scheme, you can get almost the same amount of mileage out of it but you're guaranteed that it's going to build it or copy it or whatever it is for each, each scheme that is created. Oh, so you have, you could stick with just one target or fewer targets, but you know that that target is always going to built by every different scheme you create. Yeah, exactly. Right. And then the schemes just control minor tweaks on like, you know, whether it's debugging or testing is turned on or. Yeah, that makes sense. And that, that is pretty useful. Schemes are a pretty nice thing to have. I remember before there were schemes, there was like, do you remember there was this, uh, it was back in Xcode 3, I guess. There was that weird triple pop-up where you would pick like a target and a build setting or something and a third thing. I don't remember. Mm. And then schemes kind of became the intersection of these different things. So like yeah. instead of having, you know, there was always a certain set of those. If you had three different pop-ups and each of those had three options, well, that's three times three, that's 27 different things. And some of those combinations are not meaningful. Right, And so schemes were a nice way to sort of filter that down and say, here we actually want to create this sort of slice of, we want to use this target and this build setting and this other thing. Right. In our legacy projects, we're still using uh, XC config files. And we use that for like lots of C++ flags and stuff like that. Okay. 
And that's nice because it does the config files map well to the schemes and, and how things go together there. But with our newest project, like, like I said, it's just all Swift. We're doing, doing it, quote-unquote, Apple's way, because that's mm-hmm. probably the path of least resistance in, in doing a new project these days, I think. Right. So in doing it Apple's way, are you also thinking about their recommendations for splitting things up into frameworks and that sort of thing? Yeah, and we're doing more of that. The code base is still really small, so I guess we don't really have something that's really worth splitting out. But we do use an open source SDK that we're also developing for our platform, for our service. And we get that through a framework via Carthage. A bit of that on a few projects of having having a framework that has some shared code. There were cases where we were building an iOS app and a Mac app and also a Mac Today extension. Yeah, And it was nice to have a spot where we could put these things in a, a framework internal to the project. It was all in the same repo and everything. So we didn't even, we weren't even dealing with Carthage. It was all just kind of a way of taking stuff that is in the same, it's all in the same directory tree, but mm. we're separating out the the components based on what they're going to belong to. Right. And those built frameworks and that the dependencies resolve themselves in your, in your workspace, I guess. Right. Yeah. Once you get it set up, it's, it's pretty nice. And then I guess once you're doing that, you can also take advantage of the fact that Swift lets you partition your code in a different way. You can make things that are specific only for this module as opposed to being public. Right. So it's kind of nice, but I haven't done too much with that. I'm about to start a new project for a new client, new to me anyway. They've been around for a while, but mm-hmm. it should be fun to get back into something that is it's a bit more like what you're talking about, where they have kind of a hybrid project because it's been around for a while. So they have parts in Object2C and parts in Swift, and it should be fun getting back into some pure iOS stuff, Yeah, which is mostly what I've been doing, but just the latest few weeks i've been working on a unity project which is also a lot of fun i haven't worked on unity for a number of years at this point but it's always fun to sort of dip my toe back into and try it out again and figure out what's what's going on have you played with it at all i evaluated it a long time ago when i was looking for a new external engine Uh, i worked at a game studio in tokyo for 10 years and we had in-house solutions for a while but then after that ended up going with unreal but mm-hmm. yeah, I've never used Unity though in a production scenario. It's pretty neat. In general, I, I like what they're doing. There are some things about it that are they've fallen way behind in terms of their C Sharp and .NET. The whole thing is built on .NET, or rather, built on Mono, yeah. the, the open source .NET thing. Yeah. But it's it's built on a version from many, many, many years ago. Yeah. So anything that has been added to C Sharp in the past. I don't know, six, eight, ten years. I don't know. It's just not there. <laughs> so it's kind of frustrating. Like there are a lot of things that that you can read about, you know, that people are doing today in C sharp in .NET that yeah. just it's like, wow, this would be a cool way to make this Unity game. Oh, we can't do this and this and this and this and this. Yeah. But they are, they are working on it. They actually have I think in the current release you can actually run you can write code that uses modern C sharp features and use it like it's, I think it's C sharp six and it's .NET, what four point something, mm-hmm. and you can run that code just within the editor. So when you run your game in the editor to test it out, you can use those features, but it's not yet enabled for for actually exporting or actually building anything because they're put in there as kind of a as kind of a trial. Okay. They want developers to start trying it out and making sure that it actually. It actually works that using the new compiler doesn't break old code and that sort of thing. So they're moving forward, but it's something that I remember when I was, you know, back when I started doing Unity, which is probably in 2000, 
12, I guess, maybe even 11. I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. When I first looked at it and just looking around and seeing then that people were complaining already then about the old version of C sharp and, and the old version of mono that they had. And that's pretty much what they still have today. So it's, it's kind of frustrating in that sense, but there are signs that it's moving forward. That's, that's very good. And what they are doing a very good job with, I think is actually making just like really interesting graphical tools for doing a lot of game related tasks, you know, creating animations and animating 3d characters and all these things that you can actually do right in the tool. A mm-hmm. lot of things that if you're a big 3d game studio, you probably build your own tools. You have your own your own tools you've had for years to building these games, and and that's fine, but not really accessible for most people. Whereas what Unity has built into their tool, you know, it's kind of it would take anybody years to build up that amount of functionality on their own. Yeah, and I guess you could say, well, you know, it's not quite up to speed with what I want to do for building the next Call of Duty game. Which, sure, that's fine, but <laughs> but for a lot of people, it's an incredible amount of functionality. Right. So it's pretty cool. I I like the product quite a bit. And I like that you can actually code in C in C sharp as opposed to C. It would be cool to code in Swift also, but oh well. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably not ever going to happen. I'm actually pretty comfortable with C sharp as well. I think it's a pretty nice language, actually. I have no major complaints. Hmm. Is the UI in, in Unity still done with scale form or are they using something different now? Meaning what? The scale form is a third party solution for rendering flash and taking flash files and rendering them at polygonal meshes. Hmm. That I don't know. I don't know the details of, of how their UI is done. Like I, I know that at least at some level, their UI is programmable using C sharp. Okay. So you can extend the editor. That's also one of the nice things. You can write your own C sharp code that will add functionality to the editor itself. Kind of like if you could do Xcode plugins in a legal way, but with the advantage that you don't even have to, there's not even a separate compilation step. You don't have to build a plugin. Mm. You just write a C-sharp class and stick it in a certain directory in your project, and that gets added, it gets compiled into the editor as it's running. Okay, so it's like a, you can build widgets that way. It's kind of like the IB designable for Unity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It both lets you create your own sort of custom inspectors, for your own objects and your own classes. Mm-hmm. It also add, lets you add things to the sort of design view and the game view. You have a view where you can sort of navigate around the world and in, look at your object graph. And you have another view that is like the game view that presents what the actual camera is showing when the game is playing. With Unity's extensions you can do, you can draw right into those things. So say you have a character that's running across a surface and you want to check and see, or say, say it's a it's a complex character like a car or something, and you want to make sure the wheels are all on the ground in the right spot and it's bumpy ground. One of the ways you can do this commonly in Unity for testing to see if you're touching something is you can do individual ray casts that are not used for rendering, like as I think of ray casting, as used, and that's a technique for figuring out what is the color of a point render on the screen. But in this case, you can do a ray cast from any point in the world in any direction, and it will give you what is the next polygon that that line that ray intersects mm-hmm. okay that's a nice nice way to figure out if there is something right below you or something in front of you or whatever and what you can easily do in the unity editor then is you can say okay whenever this character is being shown on screen all these rays that i'm using to test what's in front of it and behind it i just want to draw those just draw those as lines as brightly colored lines right and that's something that's 
very easy to do. Okay. So you can add a lot of sort of extra things. And, and so people have used this to create very interesting plugins. There are plugins that you can buy on the Unity Asset Store that will let you do things like create a world using sort of prepackaged game objects in a way that's much more quickly than you could, could have done otherwise. Mm-hmm. So you can have a lot of like components that are ready to go and sort of you pull them out and they snap together and all these sorts of things, all thanks to Unity's scriptable UI. So it's very cool. What's the revenue model for that? Do you know, does Unity get a, a cut of stuff that's sold in the store? Yeah, they do. I think probably they get 30%. It's probably yeah. just like Apple and everybody else. Yeah. And also by the same token, you can put things in the asset store that you make available for free mm-hmm. and it costs you nothing to do it. The prices are much more free form than they are on, say, the iOS app store. Like you can find plugins that cost a dollar or 22 cents or $50 <laughs> or whatever. Like it seems to be you set your own price. Yeah. Apparently, and there's quite a bit that's free also. That's actually quite nice. There, there are a lot of free components. Like if you want to play around with Unity's character animation, it lets you have a character that, that will run and jump and turn and look and things. You can grab a ready generic character. There are probably dozens on there on the apps or on their asset store that don't cost anything at all, and download some animations and attach them to the thing and plug it in and hook it up and have your guy running around. And then, you know, those things might not be production quality, but at least lets you sort of try out the tool and figure out to what extent does this do what I want and what is missing here. Right. So pretty neat. Again, it doesn't replace the actual work of a proper designer, proper animators doing these things, but it's nice to be able to have something that is at least semi-usable right out of the box for nothing. Just to be able to kind of put together a game and get a feel for if you're on the right path. So placeholder graphics placeholder animations at least that's cool so but there's a lot of stuff on there that is actually quite good so if i had the money and the time to just sit and build a game by myself for hours and hours in it with the large scope that is definitely the way i would do it is use unity look around the app the asset store looking for things that i could use yeah. and then tweak them as i can I remember a couple of years ago there was who was it? Somebody who was going to make a new Ultima game. I think it was the original Ultima developer who was going to make a new Ultima game, and he assembled a team. And they were doing it all with Unity, and they were all doing it all with cheap assets they found in the asset store. And then mm-hmm. what they were doing is they would, like, if they would download a model of a dragon or whatever, and found that it wasn't good enough, they would use that as a starting point for making a better version. And then what they said they would do is they would take that better version and actually pass it back to whoever they bought it from. Yeah. Because they were not even paying a lot of money. There's almost nothing on there that costs $100, say. Like, it's all, even if you have high-quality stuff there that's, you know, pretty intricate packages there, it's all relatively cheap. That's cool. So it's like the the, the content can evolve over time. Then again, all the games should get better, I guess, in that aspect. Yeah, like, it's, you know, it's not exactly like the open source world, but they were, at least for those people making that game, they were trying to adhere to some kind of principle of sharing back with with the source that they got something from so it seemed nice all right well hey i wonder if we should wrap it up here okay show notes for this episode can be found at buildphase.fm slash 117 you can find us on twitter at buildphase you can send us email to hosts at buildphase.fm and of course we always appreciate ratings and reviews on itunes or anywhere else you may be listening to podcasts and that's it david thanks for joining me it's been great yeah a good time thanks a lot good talk to you later see ya